0: Hello, and welcome to the iFormRx podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. This is Katie Kaiser, Associate Editor of iFormRx, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today, we'll be talking about statin-associated muscle pain, an N-of-1 trial design, and how ambulatory care pharmacists can engage patients in shared decision-making regarding statin therapy. The study we'll be discussing today was published in the British Medical Journal in February 2021 and used a very unique clinical trial design. Joining me today to discuss this study are Dr. Elizabeth Hearn and Dr. Stuart Haynes. Dr. Hearn is a PGY2 ambulatory care resident and Dr. Haynes is professor and director of professional development at the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy at the Medical Center in Jackson. Together, they wrote a commentary for iFormRx entitled Tiny N-of-1 Trials to Overcome Statin-Associated Muscle Pain. Elizabeth, Stewart, thank you for joining me today for this iFormRx podcast. Thank you, Katie. I'm really excited to be here.
1: Yes, thanks so much, Katie. I really appreciate you playing host today.
0: (laughs) Yes, of course. It's a pleasure for me. So, Stewart, before we get into the details about the study you reviewed in your i 4 commentary, let's talk a little bit about statin-associated muscle pain. There seems to be a significant difference between the incidence of muscle symptoms reported in blinded clinical trials, which is typically around 3 to 4%, and the incidence of muscle symptoms reported by patients in practice and in unblinded observational studies, which is more like 10 to 25%. Why do you think there is such a big difference?
1: Well, Katie, uh, it is true that in blinded clinical trials, the incidence of muscle complaints is much, much lower than what is reported in clinical practice, and I think it's likely due to several factors. There was a systematic review conducted back in 2015, which identified 26 clinical trials that reported muscle symptoms, and the incidence of patient-reported muscle symptoms was actually only half a percent higher in the statin group than it was in patients in the placebo groups in that systematic review. So the incidence of muscle symptoms was around 12.3% in the placebo-treated patients and about 12.8% in the statin-treated patients. So it seems that the background rate of muscle symptoms is pretty darn high. So in patients who experience muscle pain or stiffness, it probably is less than 1% of those cases Where the symptoms could truly be attributed to statin use now it's also true that patients who participate in clinical trials are a very selected population and what i mean is that patients who enroll in studies tend to be a bit younger and a bit healthier than the general population and many of the patients are excluded that are high risk from these trials. So patients who wouldn't have qualified to participate in a clinical trial are prescribed statins in practice. And in some cases, they are taking interacting meds and have comorbid diseases that might increase the risk of statin-induced muscle symptoms. This difference, the difference between those who volunteer and qualify for clinical trials versus those who are prescribed statins in practice might explain some of the observed difference in the incidence of muscle symptoms. So I think it's unlikely to explain the several-fold increase in the incidence of adverse effects that's reported in practice. So it's a contributing factor, but not the primary culprit. In addition to the fact that muscle symptoms are just plain commonplace, I think the nocebo effect likely explains much of the statin-associated muscle pain that we see in practice. We've learned a lot over the past decade about the power of placebos and that our beliefs are as much a part of the therapeutic power of drugs as the pharmacological action of drugs. Similarly, our beliefs that a medication might cause a certain adverse effect also increases the likelihood that we may experience that effect basically we begin to pay closer attention to the occurrence of the symptom and then when we perceive that we are having that symptom we amplify that sensation and, and i don't want to characterize this as that these sensations are all in your head but frankly all symptoms are all in our head but with mindfulness training we've shown that When we pay attention to and attend to sensations, we can either diminish those sensations or we can increase them. So we can either learn to let them be and let them go, or we can pay attention to symptoms very closely and we create a neuronal pathway in our brains that amplifies and solidifies those sensations. So that's why these symptoms can become pretty persistent even if they're initially just triggered by something that's quite transient.
0: Very interesting insight, Stuart. Elizabeth, now let's talk about the statin-wise study you critiqued in your i4MRX commentary. The study is entitled Statin Treatment and Muscle Symptoms, Series of Randomized Placebo-Controlled n of one Trials. We provide a link to the paper on the i4MRX website, but for those in our audience who haven't read the paper, can you give us a brief summary of the study design and its major findings?
2: Sure, Katie. So this study is attempting to address that disconnect that Stuart mentioned between blinded and unblinded reporting of symptoms like muscle pain or weakness associated with statin use. And the study is a compilation of N of 1 trials that were conducted in patients who previously reported muscle symptoms when taking statins and had either already stopped or planned to stop taking a statin. Every patient was randomized to a series of six double blinded treatment periods of either atorvastatin, 20 milligrams daily, or placebo. So, for a year, each patient was randomly assigned to take atorvastatin or placebo for two months at a time. The primary outcome was self reported muscle symptoms, which they defined as pain, weakness, tenderness, stiffness, or just cramps of any sort of intensity. And these symptoms were all measured on a validated visual analog scale ranging from zero to 10 in the last week of each two-month period. So the investigators analyzed the N of 1 trials in a combined analysis that included all participants who entered data at least once during a statin period and at least once during a placebo period. And they reported no statistically significant difference in muscle symptom scores was found between the statin and placebo periods. At the end of each N-of-1 trial, every patient was provided their individual results of their scores. And interestingly, two-thirds of the patients reported restarting statin after receiving their results.
0: Very interesting, Elizabeth. Sounds like N-of-1 studies can provide some important insights about what works and what doesn't work in an individual patient's care. So what do you believe are some of the key strengths and weaknesses of this study and the design of the N-of-1 trials?
2: You know, Katie, that's a great question. And it's actually something that I had to look into myself when I first read the study because we don't see this N-of-1 design reported very often. And the N-of-1 trials are these tiny trials, as we call them, with just one study participant, just one singular patient. They can be used when trying to maybe compare efficacy between two treatment options, measure tolerability of adverse events with a treatment option, or even to investigate adverse events between one or more treatment options. And the utility of the design is great because you can pinpoint and personalize tolerable and effective treatment options for a specific patient. So I think that's the most obvious end of one trial strength, ultimately, and traditionally, N of one trials should also be randomized and placebo-controlled. And with just one study subject, there should be fairly high internal validity. Since there's only one patient, they can be monitored and tracked more closely, which does allow for shared decision-making. And in the case of our study, you can see that two-thirds of patients were willing to resume a statin after knowing their results. So you're now allowing patients to make informed decisions around their own health. But on the flip side, there are some obvious weaknesses to the end of one design. There's no way to determine if what works in this one patient would be parallel in other patients. So there's a lack of external validity. Additionally, it comes down to the individual practitioner to design the study well. For example, our biggest concern with the study critiqued here was that statin-related muscle symptoms usually don't hit until about six months after starting a statin and take over two months to resolve when the statin is stopped. So just testing these patients in two-month periods does not allow time to really definitively prove that muscle symptoms have set in during statin periods or have, could have maybe carried over from previous periods. But to me, the most daunting limitation is that these studies can be pretty time-consuming for the provider. The provider and the patient have to coordinate and follow these results over time. So ultimately, that's a really great limiting step here.
0: Great. You highlighted a lot of strengths and weaknesses of N of 1 trials. But for our listeners, what are the bottom line implications of this particular study? Is there a role for NF1 trials in routine clinical practice, not only to sort out statin-associated muscle pain, but perhaps in other clinical scenarios?
1: Well, let me tackle this question first because I'd like to talk about the potential role of n one clinical trials. So as Elizabeth alluded to in her comments, we think this particular study has some significant flaws and we're not sure that it proves that statin use is or is not related to the patient's muscle symptoms. And therefore, the report really can't be generalized to other patients. However, I think the methodology using N of 1 trials to discern whether an adverse effect Might be related to a medication or conversely determine whether a medication has some benefit in terms of reducing symptoms can be really helpful we face this dilemma in clinical practice all the time a patient reports some symptoms and we're not sure but it could be an unwanted effect related to the medication that they were prescribed or the patient has been taking a medication but we're not sure if it's really working or helping and so what we typically end up doing is switching the patient to something else And invariably, that something else is more expensive or more challenging for the patient to use, or perhaps it's got a set of risks associated with its use that we'd rather avoid, and that's why we didn't pick that medication in the first place. But what if there was some way to make that decision based on data rather than gut intuition? And I think that's the power of an N of 1 trial. It, it can help us make a better decision in an individual patient's case. And isn't that what personalized medicine is all about? Now, not everything is amenable to an N of 1 trial. The adverse effects or the benefits of a treatment must be observable in a relatively short period of time typically within a month or two. And because an N-of-1 trial involves multiple crossover periods, the offset of the effect of that medication has to be pretty quick too. Obviously, an N-of-1 trial isn't suitable for conditions that require acute treatment or when the treatment is curative, like using antibiotics. Unfortunately, NF1 trials are not cheap to conduct because we need the infrastructure to do a blinded trial. So someone will need to do the randomization and someone will need to do the blinding of the treatments in some way, which isn't always easy to do and in some cases isn't possible without adulterating the, the product. And you'll need to systematically collect data from each treatment period. And of course, you'll need a patient who's willing to participate in a blinded trial. And most patients are probably not willing to do that, but some are. So there's probably only a small number of disease states and treatments where conducting an NM1 trial makes sense and only a small number of patients who are willing to participate. But I think it could be a unique niche service that clinical pharmacists could provide, particularly in a large academic health science center. For me, the the big question is who's going to pay for it? How could you finance such a service? I think there is one circumstance when it would be financially justifiable to conduct an N of one. And that's when the alternative medication is going to be significantly more expensive. And under that circumstance, I think an insurer should be willing to foot the cost because we can avoid switching from a relatively inexpensive medication, say something that costs only $25 a month, to something that might cost several hundreds or thousands. And to save that amount of money, thousands and thousands year after year, would make a lot of sense. And so therefore, the insurer has an incentive to pay for an end of one trial to figure out whether it's really necessary to switch to that more costly medication. There really is no incentive for a patient to bear this expense. So asking patients to pay for this service really isn't a feasible way to finance it.
2: And Stuart, you bring up really good points about the cost of trials like this. And I think that there is one thing I want to talk about that could prevent us from having to worry about costs at all, and that is framing. You know, we talk pretty in-depth in the I-form RX about how the flaws of this study design specifically invalidate the reliability of the results, but there's one undeniable secondary outcome that strikes me here. And I'm talking about that outcome that identified two-thirds of patients in the study who decided they were willing to retry a statin after getting the results of their surveys. And it highlights that keeping patients informed and allowing them insight into their healthcare decisions can make a big difference. Not every physician will be able to individually complete an N of one trial like in this scenario, but when patients receive positive information about medications and not just statin therapy, but any medications, and the benefits of therapy are clearly displayed and properly framed, it makes a world of difference. So in reality, statins are much more likely to prevent cardiovascular events and prevent death than they are to cause any type of muscle-related adverse events. And this is true of most of the therapies we're hoping patients will use. The benefits outweigh the risks. And while I'm not saying we should shield patients from knowing about potential adverse events, I strongly believe that giving evidence-based and guideline-directed framing around the benefits of a drug therapy could be one of the strongest ways to convince patients of a treatment's success.
0: Great, guys. I love how you all brought up both about cost, which is always at the top of the list, right, and shared decision-making with patients, which I think is equally important. Well, Elizabeth and Stuart I want to thank you for joining me today to discuss muscle symptoms associated with statin use and the potential role that n of one trials could play to help all of us sort out when pain is unlikely to be related to statin therapy so given the results of this study, it appears that most patients are willing to restart statins if they believe their symptoms are not related to statin therapy. Well, tell us what you think what do you do when your patients have concerns or believe their muscle aches and pains might be due to statins. Better yet, are you interested in starting an N of 1 trial service at your institution? Remember only iForumRx members can leave comments and use the interactive features on the site. If you are a healthcare professional, you can join iForumRx for free, so sign up today. For those of you who are board-certified ambulatory care pharmacists, be sure to check out the American Pharmacists Association's board prep and recertification program. You can earn continuing education and board recertification credits for this program. To learn more, click on the link posted below the commentary on the i4MRx website. Lastly, a big thank you to you, our iFormRx subscribers. And until next time, this is Katie Kaiser, Associate Editor of iFormRx, signing off.